So friends, there's two things about me that I want you to know today. I don't really like church, and I don't know what salt tastes like. See, I had COVID three years ago, and, uh, you know, back before it was cool, and the original strain, you're welcome, and the only symptom I had that whole time was that I lost my taste. Smell never went away, but one day I ate an Oreo, and I thought to myself, this must be a stale Oreo because it tastes kind of just like vaguely chocolatey, but not sweet. And then the next morning, Nicole made an omelet. And I was like, this just tastes vaguely like an omelet. This doesn't taste like an omelet. And then I realized, oh my goodness, I don't know if I'm tasting things. And I tried to just like put a bunch of salt on my tongue and it was nothing. Not even like a hint of salt. I mean, nothing. Here. This is, uh, this is lemon juice. It tastes vaguely of lemon, but there's no sour. You ever drink white vinegar? For the folks at home? Nothing. It's funny because <clears throat> I can't taste it, but it's still shriveling my mouth. <laughs> the effects are still there, but I have no idea what it tastes like. It's just kind of like evil water. There's my party trick for you today. <laughs> It's such a weird sensation, and for a while, uh, difficult, uh, a little depressing. Um, but at some point, it just kind of became normal that I don't remember what taste tastes like. So people say to me all the time, oh, how hard it must be to not be able to eat. But I, at this point, forget what I have lost and so I don't miss it because I don't remember what it is that I missed. Does that make any sense? I literally have no idea what I have lost. And I was thinking about this text the other day. I don't know if you remember right before Christmas, we had that flash freeze and there was ice everywhere. We had ice on the sidewalks and I had not prepared for that. And so I didn't want my neighbors to slip and me get sued. So I just found a big old thing of kosher salt in our, in, our, in our pantry and just threw it all over the sidewalk because I don't care about that. I can't taste it anyway, so I don't put it on my food. I mean, poor Nicole, if she was hoping to have salted food. Um, but to me, it was only good for throwing on the ice and trampling underfoot. And I thought, oh, there you go, Jesus. Finally, that passage makes a little bit of sense. Because <laughs> this part of Matthew has always bothered me since I've heard this and heard this preached 10,000 times. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again, right? Salt can't lose its saltiness. That's not a thing that happens to salt. And it's always bugged me that Jesus, this is one of your most famous illustrations, and it's really bad science. It doesn't actually work. 
But this year, this year, it actually made sense to me. For the first time in my life, this very often preached passage made a little bit of sense to me. And it wasn't that the salt has lost its saltiness, as in you good followers of Jesus have lost your way and you need to be better Christians. It was that what use is salt if you can't taste salt? So maybe if we flip this passage around a little bit, what if we say the church is the salt of the earth? But if people lose their sense of taste, what does it matter? Hmm. If a person has been hurt by the church or by a church person, it doesn't matter how great the next church is, they will not be able to receive it. It doesn't matter how hip and fresh and young and contemporary that church is. It doesn't matter how justice folks, how, how practical that church is. It doesn't matter how applicable, how loving, how wonderful, how inclusive that church is. If a person cannot receive it, if a person cannot taste the salt, it won't matter. They could walk into an abusive megachurch and some incredible Jesus-focused church and it would be the exact same experience. And I get that. Deep in my soul, I get that because I not only lost my sense of taste recently, but I lost my taste for church a long time before that. I grew up in the church, um, which is probably an understatement. I, from the time that I was attending like daycare until I graduated from seminary, I have never attended anything except for Christian schools. I mean Christian daycare, preschool, kindergarten, elementary school, high school, college, seminary. I'm currently getting a doctorate in ministry. I have never once attended anything but a Christian school. I have been to church my entire life. My dad was the head elder and the worship leader. I was there on the weekends and the weekdays and the evenings and the morning. I lived and breathed church every single moment of my life. There are pastors in my family tree all the way up in the branches. You cannot escape the church in my upbringing, which meant... I knew how the sausage got made, and I didn't want to eat it <laughs> because churches chew people up and spit them out in my experience. And I attended this school that was kind of a really strong Pentecostal charismatic kind of a place. You can imagine the kind where they're like people rolling in the aisles and speaking in tongues and all the very forward-facing things, but it was also very manipulative, very abusive I've been through a lot of therapy to try to get through it. Um, one brief example of that, and I, I could be here for hours giving you examples, but one brief example is I remember very clearly my seventh grade Bible teacher telling us that every single time you sin, you forfeit your salvation until you've asked for forgiveness for that sin. I mean, the logic makes sense, right? They would say sin separates you from God. Jesus will free you from that, your punishment, if you ask for it. 
So therefore, every time you sin, you must need to ask for it. I get the logic. It's just wildly inaccurate. But I didn't know that as a seventh grader. He said to us that if Billy Graham were driving home from his greatest crusade, having saved thousands of souls, he was singing glory in his car, got cut off by an 18-wheeler, used the Lord's name in vain, and died, he'd go to hell because he didn't have a chance to apologize. And I thought to myself, okay, then this is about dying at the right time or it's about never sinning. And a seventh grader that I was couldn't stop sinning. I don't know if you remember being 13, but there's a lot of hormones happening. There's a lot of thoughts that are popping into your mind that have never been in your mind before that the church is telling you are sinful and dirty and awful. And every time you think them, it's like you've done it because Jesus said that. And so you are guilty of adultery and premarital relations every time you have any kind of impure thought. I don't know. Maybe nobody else got this teaching. I did. And so I would go through these cycles of repentance and rededicating my life to God and then falling away and backsliding. And I thought to myself at some point, surely everyone else gets this and I don't. Surely if God predestined some for salvation, he must have predestined others for damnation. <sighs> and I must be one of them. One of those people that was created to simply stoke the fires of hell. And so I lived with that knowledge of myself. You want to talk about how you reflect the image of God. For most of my adolescent life and early adulthood, I didn't think I did. I thought that I was one of those people who was created just to show how good God can be for saving everyone else. And at no point was that ever corrected. I'll tell you uh, my, my utter surprise at reading the book of Galatians in my mid-20s and realizing that it says the exact opposite of that. But I went off to college and I had a very severe mental breakdown, spiritual breakdown. Um, again, that's a story for another day. Um, eventually admitted to myself that I was an atheist. I didn't actually believe any of this stuff. I'd been following it because it's the water I swim in, and if I were to admit I didn't actually believe in this terrifying God, then I would not have my family or friends or life anymore. But I admitted it one day when I was away. And it was the most freeing experience of my life. So freeing. It felt like I, you know those houses at the shore that are up on stilts to keep the water away? It felt like my house was one of those and the wood stilts had been slowly decaying and breaking over the years and uh, instead of replacing them I'd just been like painting over them and covering them up and putting duct tape on so nobody noticed but the house was falling down and so eventually I just decided to let it fall and it was incredible. And I said, I will never go to church again. I am done with this whole thing. I am leaving this school. It's going to be wonderful. And that lasted a couple of months before I felt the presence of God for the first time in my life. Despite having been in church forever, I finally experienced that truth that transcends religion. And I was so excited, and I started learning for the first time, and I started reading scripture for the first time, and I started just 
exploding with this sense of gratitude. And the church that I had grown up in, that my grandfather had pastored before I was born, that I had spent my entire life in, in which I was the, the worship leader for the youth group where I preached my first sermons, where the people encouraged me to go to school to become a pastor, where it was understood that I was going to go to seminary and come back and take over after that pastor retired, where I had been a leader and a beloved golden child my entire life. I went back to that church with this newfound enthusiasm for Christ and became an intern, um, a pastoral intern to learn the ropes. And I preached a sermon in which I questioned the idea that we can't question doctrine. I didn't question any doctrines. I didn't say, hey, you think private that we didn't let women be in positions of authority in preaching, but yet we let our worship leader, who was a woman, do all of the work behind the scenes of an associate pastor. I brought, and this was my final awful sin, I brought a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, which is a Hindu holy text, to a Bible study to show them how incredible it was, all of the parallels between this and the Bible verses that we were reading. And my very friends went to the pastor and said to him, we're not going to give to this church while this guy's on the payroll because he's a heretic and he's dangerous and he's leading people astray. So the pastor had a very difficult conversation with me in which I had to prove my orthodoxy. And then the elders essentially gave me an ultimatum that I would need to come before them for questioning or that I would need to leave. And so that church, which had fostered me from that point on, from that point my whole life, kicked me to the curb because I dared to question a few things. I didn't even get into, like, what if hell isn't real? Woo, no. I was just like, why can't ladies do things? And that was enough. <laughs> so I was done. Done, done at that point. Maybe I was going to keep pursuing seminary, but I was not going to be a pastor because forget the church. And then I joined a church in Philadelphia in my mid-20s, and it was everything that I had hoped a church could possibly be. Filled with young people asking questions. It was a safe place to question any theology, any doctrine. Nothing was too sacred to be looked at in a different way. It was modern. It was contemporary. It was artsy. We wrote all of our own music. We've sung a few of those songs since we've been together. It was everything that I had hoped in a church. And I was there for years. And it was the first time I actually felt like maybe a better church is possible. But it was also a church planting church who was very focused on meeting new people and making new congregations and spreading and expanding. The thought is, if you're not growing, you're dying. So when I told my pastor that I was leaving because I felt called to pastor this United Church of Christ congregation in Reading, my pastor told me in no uncertain terms, you're making a mistake, you're going backwards, and that was it. I was cut off. Um cut off from all communications with people. Folks wouldn't respond to my emails or text messages. People wanted nothing to do with me. I was told by a leader in the church that if you're not a member or somebody who might become a member, 
They just don't have the time or energy for you because we're so focused on meeting new people and spreading the gospel, as it were. So as somebody who'd been hurt by the church, that confirmed the fact I was not a person there. I was a number. I was a resource. I was replaced in the way that a company might replace you when you leave. So that's great. (laughs) So I don't like church. And I don't trust the church. And I don't trust, I don't like most church services, to be honest with you. Because sometimes I'll be in a church service, and especially one that is kind of a more traditional service, and I'll hear a word or a phrase. I'll hear a chord progression, and I'll get triggered, and I'll go back to being 13 years old, hating myself and thinking that I deserve hellfire and damnation. I'll hear some trendy little bit about church now, and I'll go back to feeling like I'm just another number, another resource. And I have tried to get out of this, like Michael Corleone from The Godfather, but every time I try to get out, they suck me right back in. Godfather 3, right? That didn't happen. Because every time I I bargain with God about doing something different, I hear the same exact thing. I hear, you are not called to be the pastor for the lifelong diehard stalwarts, though we're glad you're here. And I, I love you. But you are called to be the pastor for the doubter, the skeptic, the agnostic, and the people who don't trust religion. And so you, my beloved friends, are helping me as much or more than I am helping you spiritually in this church plant on the edges of chaos, as it were. Because being in this space where we can be open and honest uh, without some kind of manipulative end game about numbers, this is unlike any space that I've encountered. We're working hard to make sure it stays like that because we're not trying to meet some kind of membership quota of lost souls or new members. Uh, So if you find that rubbing up against religion or religious people is just too much for you, that it's too hard, that it makes you sick, feel free to walk away. It's a great thing for a pastor to tell you, right? Feel free to leave And we won't try to pressure you to come back. However, we will probably still bug you because we like you. But if you never come back to a worship service, we're not going to lose any sleep about your eternal soul. Because a place that is safe for those of us who have lost our taste for religion has to be a place that has an easy escape route. Because those memories of trauma, they will return. And sometimes it's just too much. So I want to give you all three encouragements, and then oh, maybe, maybe we uh, have just a minute of sharing any reflections very shortly that you have, since, of course, we got to bounce out of here. <laughs> but I want to give you three encouragements here. First, If you have lost your taste for religion and the whole thing makes you nauseous, 
no matter how much you intellectually want to reconnect to a church, you are not alone. And chances are, if you fall into that category, you're probably not here right now. Chances are you're watching on YouTube or you're listening to the podcast because you want to connect from the edges, but just, just being in a place like this is just going to feel too icky. That's fine. You probably still have some internal work to do, and that's fine. You need to spend some time identifying your trauma and working through it, maybe professionally working through it. You may one day feel comfortable in a religious community, and you might not. But the divine love is not bound by church membership. So keep seeking after that divine love, and it will find you. Secondly, if you have done some of that internal work, or maybe it's been some time, and you are dipping your little toe back into religion, just a little bit, just to see if I can stomach it, that's incredible. And I want to applaud you. That is so brave to take that first step. That is a big deal. And to you, if and when you find yourself being triggered by those same things that set me off, well, I imagine they're different, feel free to take a step away. Literally, walk into the lobby. <laughs> take a walk. Or if you need to be away for a few weeks, that's great. That's fine. Please let us know, however, because this space, this family is full of oddballs and outcasts. And chances are, if you feel uncomfortable with something, someone else also feels uncomfortable with that thing. So stick with it. Help us to work it out together and help us to craft a community that is truly open to everyone who is on any stage of their faith journey. And finally, to those of you who still have a good taste for religion, you can just savor all the little individual flavors and distinctions of religion like you might a good steak. I don't know. I forget what steak tastes like. <laughs> Think of a flavorful thing. I don't know. It's been a while. Your faith, while obviously not perfect, and you'd probably be the first one to say that, is so important for the rest of us. This is an important anchoring force for those of us who struggle with this kind of thing. So please don't get discouraged when you invite somebody to come out to a service and they say no, or they say, yeah, yeah, definitely I'll get to that, but they're not going to do it. Or if they do come out once and then you never see them come back again, that is not on you. That is not something that you have done wrong. This is just really hard for some of us to get our church legs back. And for all of you, whether you are in this room now or watching or listening some other time and place, thank you, thank you, thank you for going on this adventure with us. We may not have a map for this journey, but God knows we are not lost. <laughs>